Hallelujah. Father, this day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Every Lord's Day, we are here gathered because He is our living hope. The grave has no claim on us and no hold on Christ. As long as He has the power of resurrection and has demonstrated it by rising on the third day, more than this, ascending unto glory, ruling and reigning the right hand of the Father. And now as we turn to His living word, I pray that it would do its mighty work like a sword well-trained to, deci to decipher and discern soul from spirit, to do that necessary spiritual surgery, to cut out from our lives the sin that easily entangles, to pierce our soul with the conviction that is so needful, to move us to turn from wickedness and to turn to Jesus Christ, to reveal the truths upon which all of reality, the past, the present, and the future are established, that is, by the almighty decree of a sovereign God. And also to realize that the hand of the sovereign who penned these words through his dutiful servants through the ages has revealed himself in glory. Father, you have unveiled your manifold glories, your supernatural power in so many ways in Holy Scripture, fulfilling type and shadow of old in Jesus Christ, fulfilling prophecies spoken ages before the time was to come. And satisfying, Lord Jesus, the hope of all the faithful who look forward to the coming of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And keeping us, Lord, in the fold by giving us that direct, those directives and marching orders to look towards the promise of the fully manifest kingdom of God in the age to come. When the new heavens and new earth welcome your glory revealed in consummate form and the kingdom endures without spot or blemish with all the ransomed people forevermore. As we turn to your Old Testament and we turn to our forefather Abraham, Lord, I pray that you would remind us as believers in this room that we have a family connection and we his heirs now turn to his testimony and realize that a sovereign God has knit us together through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would also use the proclamation of your word to call the lost unto salvation. And that if there are any in the reach of this message who have not turned from their sin, have not hit their knees in repentance and faith, that they would place their trust in Christ alone who can save them from their sin. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Today we turn to the Holy Scriptures in Genesis chapter 24. So if you have your Bible with, would you turn there today? In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's Holy Word, verses 1 through 28, Genesis 24. The title of this morning's sermon is Covenant Bride Quest. In the waning years of Abraham's life, it occurs to him that once again the covenant is dependent on an event that would be the marriage of the one and only covenant son, Isaac. If Isaac does not have a bride, God's promises will not continue. Hence, the covenant bride quest. The aim of this morning's message is to showcase the hand of God in securing His covenant promises. Yes, even the hand of God in using the means that we see in our text today to secure a wife for Isaac, the covenant son. Amazing, in fact, and amazing indeed, as we see the Lord and His glory revealed in these profound ways, and also very tangible, very meaningful, and very touching. Would you stand today out of reverence for God's Word, 
And let us hear these scriptures proclaimed in our ears today. Listen as the word of God comes to you. Genesis 24, verses 1 through 28. Here is the word of God. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will, will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. And the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, quote, To your offspring I will give this land, quote, He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water when the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young men to whom I say, let young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the son of Nahor, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her jar of water on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran up to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar, she said. Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a hold, took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Verse 26, The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. 
Verse 28, Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. I hope you were caught up a little bit in this string of events. Scholars universally have recognized this passage of Scripture, namely Genesis 24, the record of the meeting, the love story, if you will, between Isaac and Rebekah, as a standalone piece, as a signature example of literature. There is all the classic elements of a well-told story, but it's not just a well-told story. It's It's a documentation of actual significant events. Yes, even showcasing the hand of God in securing His covenant promise via a bride through these means for Isaac, the son, the only covenant son of Abraham. Let's get a little bit of context. Abraham is now around 140 years old. At 140 years of age, that would make Isaac himself about 40 years old. And once again, the entire covenant hinges on one outstanding situation, it would appear. Securing a covenant bride for Isaac. You remember the anguish in the household of Abraham when he did not have a wife who was fertile, who could bear him a son. Sarah was barren all those many years. And so in a desperate appeal, To make do, Hagar was offered the concubine, the secondary wife, as a means whereby Abraham could procure a lineage. And all the trouble that that caused eventually got answers with a miracle. The barren womb at near 100 years old of Sarah springs forth in resurrection life, and a child is born to her in her old age. And suddenly we breathe a sigh of relief as we read this story, realizing that God, by a miraculous divine intervention, has called life out of death and born a child to the covenant mother in the last hour, as it were, when she was nearly 100 years old. Yes, you could breathe a sigh of relief, but if you were walking in mere human shoes, you could see yourself frustrated and anxious once again, because now the only son is 40 years old, and as yet is unmarried. Merely from the outside looking in, one could easily empathize with Abraham's reaction if he were to entertain anxiety and frustration at this juncture. Not again, Lord, not again. Is the future of the covenant and my children jeopardized because there is as of yet no bride for my son, no grandson to call my own? However, Abraham, note in our text, this is really something. Abraham is a mature man at this point in the record, not just in years, 140, but also in faith. Abraham, the faith-filled man, having embraced the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, does not react in anxiety and frustration. Rather, the patriarch commissions his trusted servant to secure a wife for his son from his kindred, from his people. These events have been foreshadowed in the text. You remember chapter 22, this little parenthesis, verse 23, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Yes, we see sort of a foreshadowing in our text of where the wife of Isaac will come from. Here we learn Abraham's nephew Bethuel has a daughter named Rebekah. And this reminds us as well that parallels and contrasts abound in the Genesis account of Abraham's life and lineage. Consider these ideas back to back. Here's a contrast. Whereas Abraham's nephew Lot, you remember the story of Lot, he bore daughters of immorality and scandal, committing incest with their father in a desperate attempt to procure lineage and to save themselves from the ravages of being abandoned 
in the city and living in the wilderness. In stark contrast to this, another nephew of Abraham, Bethuel, has a daughter, and she is amazing and virtuous. We see in this example, whereas nephew, Abraham, nephew's lot, bore daughters of immorality and scandal, Bethuel's Rebekah is introduced in our passage, passage as a virtuous woman of faith. Another contrast. While Abraham's earlier years were often marred, marred or marked by compromise, you remember him lying, a white lie about the relationship between him and Sarah to save his own life. Abraham was willing to negotiate truth about the covenant in the interest of self-preservation. However, at this stage in his life, he will make no such concessions. He will make no concessions that might jeopardize the covenant. Furthermore, the calling of Rebekah herself will end up mirroring that of Abraham as she journeys to a promise that will be revealed along the way from the same location that Abraham was called forth from decades and decades earlier. Thus, we see by just these anecdotes and examples that we have a miraculous faith and love story unfolding in our text today, and it is a spectacular display of God's sovereignty across 550 miles, to be precise about, as the purposes of God defy the odds yet again, proving that Yahweh is Lord of His covenant, and Yahweh is Lord of history, and Yahweh is Lord of marriage. We are listening to, in the reading of God's Word today, a story of a Holy Spirit-arranged marriage. Let me give you three, a heading and three points this morning for verses 1 through 28. Let us consider verses 1 through 28 according to three professions, three statements featuring God's uh, godly character and divine intervention. Three professions featuring godly character and divine intervention. Profession number one, an oath. This would be a profession, a statement of commitment by Abraham and his servant, verses 1 through 9. Second profession would be the prayer of Abraham's servant. This is a profession of dependence, verses 10 through 14. And finally, the praise, a profession of worship by the servant. And this would be verses 15 through 28. And each one of these features the godly character of three individuals. The oath, we consider Abraham in view. The prayer, we see the servant of Abraham in view. And the praise, we see Rebekah is in view. Under this uh, outline, let us consider our text today. First of all, the oath. What is the nature of this oath? It sounds strange to us as we read verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. And later this oath is enacted. It's followed through this ceremony, if you will. In verse 9, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This is once again a familiar theme. The covenant promises to Abraham are hanging in the balance. Isaac is now 40 years old, and Abraham has no daughter-in-law, let alone grandson, to assure him of God's promise. Hence the occasion for this oath. This is a profession of the significance of the moment. It's a state, the occasion is that the covenant hinges on this, and this oath is a, a unity of purpose agreed upon between two individuals as to the absolute significance and importance of this moment. 
In Genesis 47, 29-31, you can turn there on your own time later, there is a similar, almost identical, oath-swearing ceremony. And here, Joseph places the ha his hand under Jacob's thigh and commits to do the following. Yes, Father, I will take your bones from this pagan land, Egypt, and transfer them to be buried alongside your father, Abraham, in the land of promise. Another patriarchal oath and an identical oath-swearing ceremony. So what is in view here? Why the nature of this oath or what is the nature of this oath? Well, the seriousness and the solemnity of the situation is communicated by this oath-swearing ceremony. So you've all seen court scenes, I trust, like on television. Maybe you've been in court, uh, in a court proceeding. And what is customary before an oath is swear, sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, is that the hand is placed on an object that indicates the seriousness of the moment, namely the Bible. The other hand is lifted. So you see the placement of the hands and the object meant to symbolize the significance of the moment, and then the oath is sworn. This is to communicate that potentially, depending on the nature of the trial, the very life of the individual who is being considered either innocent or weighed as either innocent or guilty hangs upon the truth statements of your confession. Thus, if that life is at stake, then you should take this oath seriously. In a similar way, the hand is placed under the thigh of the patriarch because the covenant was at stake. And so this commitment to do exactly as Abraham and the will of the Lord communicated through him, directed his servant to do, must be obeyed without fail, with precision. The plans and purposes of the glory of God are evident in this exchange and recognized between the two. The seriousness and the solemnity of the situation is indicated by the oath. And much like placing the hand on the Bible and raising the other, it's communicating the following. The symbology of the oath indicates that success in this venture is dependent on the sworn obedience of the servant. So to sit upon the hand, as it were, to say, I am in submission under you is one uh, possible anecdote to draw from this ceremony. In addition to that, the strength and lineage, the thighs would represent this in ancient terms, the strength and the lineage of Abraham are at stake in this agreement. It's incredibly serious. It's incredibly important, it's incredibly personal, and the future of Abraham's lineage, indeed the covenant of the Lord himself with his people, hinges upon the nature of this oath. So this profession of commitment, the nature of this oath, indicates the godliness of Abraham and his servant, and, that the, fa and the fact that Abraham does not take this calling to procure, to find, to secure a covenant mother, a bride, if you will, for Isaac. He does not take it lightly at all. He is not uh, encouraging his uh, son to date around and try the talent pool and uh, sign up for uh, scrollharmony.com or something like that to find a wife among the uh, Semites or the people or whatever. You know, all these sort of cavalier ways that we pursue relationships today. This is quite the stark contrast from the pursuit of marriage that is more common in our culture. Something different is going on here. Something else is featured here in this oath exchange as well, and that would be the emphatic faith of Abraham. Notice he is absolutely deadly serious, and he places an emphasis on one thing. He communicates to his servant twice. It's preceded by a question. So Abraham's servant asks him, 
Well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to go back with me to the land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? What is the answer? In so many words, absolutely not. Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Now, why is Abraham so emphatic? And just to make the point again, he says in verse 8, But if this woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Now, the seriousness of this, the emphatic faith of Abraham, is, this, is communicated when you realize this, that Haran, the place of Abraham's origin, represents a paganism, idolatry, and an association and a culture from which he was called out unto the covenant promises that would take place in a new land. So for his son to retrace the steps, in other words, to go backwards uh, through the steps of faith, to go back to Haran would be regressive. It would, be, it would symbolize a lack of faith in God's covenant promises to remain in the land that God had set apart for him in faith that God would absolutely provide, even though the odds seem to be against them. Now, notice how stark of a contrast this is from Abraham's waffling faith earlier in his life. As we mentioned before, there was a time when Abraham was worried because he didn't have a son, so he took another wife, Hagar, upon the suggestion of Sarah, the covenant bride, in order to have a child. <clears throat> that would be a plan B for promise. Good idea or bad idea, kids? Was it a good idea for Abraham to take a second wife? No. Bad idea, that is correct. But why did Abraham do so? It's because he was worried. In his age and the limitations in a barren womb, the covenant was in jeopardy. Therefore, we have to do something. But notice here, the situation is entirely different. If the woman will not return, you are free from your oath. Abraham refuses to make any concessions that will potentially compromise the covenant. This is an emphatic faith. It features the godly character of Abraham. Do not take my son back there, even if a potential bride is unwilling to sojourn to Canaan. This resolve and this clarity and this covenant integrity is remarkable. This is a far cry from his compromise in earlier years. And it illustrates something to us. The plans and the purposes and the glory of God through the covenant family establish the enduring foundation of marriage. That is to say, your relationship with the Lord, with Yahweh, your covenant with God should never take second place to the promise of any other relationship. Young people, I have some applications for you today. Those of you who are growing into adulthood and will be considering marriage in the not too distant future, here's an application for you. Your relationship with the Lord is meant to be sovereign over your relationship with a potential bride or a potential husband. Think about this application. Some people may be in a moment of weakness willing to compromise their commitment to God for the promise of a romantic relationship. Abraham demonstrated a resolve that this should not be the case. Even if under these circumstances the plan didn't work out and a bride could not be procured for his son unless his son would go and fraternize with an ungodly culture, Abraham was willing to trust God and say, I guess it's not his time then. I guess it's not his plan. How many of us have been tempted? How many of us know somebody 
who is strong and committed to the Lord, apparently so. But the promise of a romantic relationship, the promise of a bride caused them to make certain concessions like Abraham did earlier in life. And suddenly their relationship with God was taking a back seat to the promise of a human relationship. And when this happens, things get disordered and upside down. Young men, God has called you to be the spiritual leader of your home. Abraham was called a patriarch for a reason, father leader. In a similar way, you are called to be a leader in your homes one day. You are called to be the one who sets the tone for godliness in your household. And you have to be clear and a man of integrity and make sure that your decisions lay out a pattern that God is to be first in my relationships, period. Then and only then will you build a strong foundation for the covenant joy, hope, and yes, the beauty, love, and the emotional reward, yes, of marriage. It's a cause and effect thing. The cause is your relationship with the Lord. The effect is the glory, the beauty, the joy, the blessing of marriage. Don't get them turned around. That is the instruction and application that we can glean from this passage. Because Abraham was faithful in this regard, the covenant lineage of the Messiah himself was secured. Likewise, husbands, if you are faithful in this regard, God, by his gracious means, may use that very decision to secure the covenant faithfulness of your own children one day. Do not get started on the wrong foot. And if you have, repent and establish your footing on God's holy word. Finally, there's a under oath, there is this moment where Abraham says the following. This is very uh, insightful. To your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Again, the faith and godliness of Abraham is illustrated in that phrase. Something passing you may gloss over, but think about it. Abraham tells his servant, don't worry about finding the proper uh, woman. God is sending his angel before you. On what ground can Abraham make this claim? Abraham has been visited by the angel of the Lord at least twice and angelic messengers even more times than this. You remember at, uh, before the visitation of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Yahweh himself and two angelic beings come and visit Abraham in his tent. Likewise, when Abraham is about to offer his son, the knife is raised to slaughter his only child. What does that voice from heaven say? You guys remember, kids, remember the voice from heaven? Yeah, yeah it stopped Abraham, right? Abraham, Abraham. And then he says, here am I. Once again, that was the angel of the Lord intervening in preservation of the covenant in both cases. Abraham has a relationship with the Lord through God revealing himself in personally manifest form and through him sending angels. So now Abraham, a man of faith, well, on this ground and experience, knows that the angel of the Lord, the Lord's presence, you could say the Holy Spirit, will precede his servant. He has faith. Because God has intervened before, he will intervene again to preserve his covenant. Like I said before, this would be a Holy Spirit-arranged marriage. Now, for those of you that are single in the hearing of my voice, do you believe that the Holy Spirit can arrange your marriage if God has called you to that? For those of you that are married, do you believe that the Holy Spirit has arranged in God's providence your marriage? And are you proceeding accordingly in your homes? These are great applications today. When we look at the profession and the oath of Abraham, we see his godliness and his commitment is a good example for us. Now, one more thing on the angel of the Lord. I believe this was prophetic of Mary herself. There would be an angel of the Lord 
in the future who would be the sent messenger to tell the future covenant mother that she would bear the son of Abraham. The angel Gabriel comes and says, Mary, and first she's afraid, Luke chapter 2, you can read of it on your own time. And then in the, in the end, he tells her, you will become, by supernatural conception, the mother of Jesus Christ, the covenant mother. You see, what, in the history of redemption, once again, the covenant hinged on this outstanding reality. Yes, the line of Abraham had been preserved, but everyone that had been born, the significant son, was a sinner up until this point. And now Mary is visited by the angel, yea, even prophesied by Abraham's voice thousands of years before that he will go before and appoint a covenant mother to be the bearer of the significant son. Abraham, unbeknownst to him likely, is prophesying of a future moment when the angel literally would go before and would announce and would arrange an incredible situation of not just a marriage, but the conception of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Number two, a profession featuring godly character and divine intervention, the prayer. And this is the prayer of Abraham's servant. Who is he? This is a profession of dependence. Turn with me to uh, chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me read again this prayer, preceded by this note, verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed taking all sorts of choice gifts of his master. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show me steadfast love and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. A, few, a couple of themes. First of all, a profession of dependence. Oh Lord, this task is too big for me. You must accomplish the will, your will, and you must answer my master's prayer. A second theme, he prays to the Lord, the God of his master. And a third theme, he prays that God would be consistent in showing his chesed, his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping faithfulness to Abraham. All this is significant. Who is this guy? Well, let me submit to you what I believe is the best candidate. And of course, this is not unique to me. This many scholars have drawn this connection. Genesis 15, 1 and 2. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And here's Abraham's response. Listen closely. But Abraham, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Have you ever wondered, who is this Eliezer of Damascus? How did he get to be so trusted and elevated in the servant uh, guild, if you will, of Abraham? How was it that Abraham saw this individual as one who could be his heir apparent 
in the absence of a biological son? Well, I think it becomes more clear when we consider the parallel between Eliezer of Damascus in chapter 15 and our text today. Could Eliezer of Damascus be this servant? Absolutely, I think it is. Then the servant, oh, in verse 2, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had taken charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, and so it goes. You see, this guy had been in the care and in the household of Abraham for a long time. That matches the Genesis 15 text. And he had been put over all his household. That matches the 15 reference as well. And if that is the case, then the following is true. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, at one time was the heir apparent of all of Abraham's fortune. After Abraham had a son, though, it became quite obvious that he no longer would be an extremely rich man upon the death of Abraham. Did Eleazar of Damascus abandon his post? Or did he stay faithful to the master and the covenant head, Abram? He stayed faithful to Abraham, uh, presumably, and now we see him in this text as a trusted servant, convert, Gentile, commissioned with one of the most important tasks in redemptive history, which will secure a bride and continue the lineage through which Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and mine would come. This guy is really something. And I have to admit, I identify most with him. Oh, to be but a faithful servant to our Lord. Oh, to be one who could be trusted with that kind of job. You see, God has commissioned you to be an ambassador for Him. Are you worthy or deserving of that call? No, you are not. You are just a Gentile from Damascus, like me. But God, through the transforming work of His Holy Spirit, can rearrange your heart so that you are bound to your Master, Jesus Christ, in such a close covenant relationship that He would entrust covenant duties to you. You see, we can identify with this man, Eliezer of Damascus. He fits the profile perfectly of Abram's trusted servant and presumptive heir in Genesis 15. No longer the heir, right? Don't be so sure. What is the real inheritance of the covenant of Abraham? Is it riches, wealth, flocks, influence, land, tents, dwellings, and servants? No. The legit heir of Abraham, the real lineage of, or the real promise of inheritance for those who are in Abraham, so to speak, is the same promise that we have in Jesus Christ. It's to be a covenant member who will enjoy all the promises of God secured through communion and redemption and relationship unto the new heavens and new earth, everything that was prefigured, foreshadowed in this time that we're reading right now, even uh, national and ethnic Israel. So this man, this servant of Abraham, was a man of faith. And his, uh, his commitment to his master did not change whether he stood to gain riches, materially speaking, or whether he stood to gain from the spiritual benefits of the covenant, he presu presumably, he knew that the real riches of being connected in the covenant of Abraham was the coming Messiah and the promise of eternal life. And thus we can relate to him. He was a model servant. Uh, historians tell us, people who uh, lay out the geography, this is likely a 21-day journey likely 550 miles, 
We see in the text he had 10 camels with him. Uh, there would be other individuals who go with him as well. He came bearing gifts, and he had the most important of tasks. He was going to secure a bride for his master. And then he models his commitment to do so in his prayer. He cries out, desperate to the Lord, to help him, knowing he is not equipped for this task. And according to these two themes, God of my master and steadfast love. Show your covenant faithfulness to my master. My eternal life hinges on it. You can almost hear him pray. Show your steadfast love to my master. The future of the redemptive purposes of the Messiah depend on my success in this venture. I am just a lowly servant, likely procured from Damascus. Yes, my master has entrusted this task to me, but I entrust this task to you. Lead me to a suitable bride from my master's son. That's the heart of this prayer. This faithful Canaanite convert. He's still an heir of Abraham, spiritually speaking. He has joined him in covenant, and we see his faith as we listen to his prayer. He brings his prayer to the one true God, Yahweh, and he identifies him as the God of my master, Abraham. This is extremely significant. This is a mediated covenant relationship. The, the uh, servant enjoys a, or has, has entered into a mediated covenant relationship with Yahweh. That is, the reason the servant knows Yahweh is because of Abraham. He is in Abraham, therefore he dresses the Lord as the God of my master. You, uh, fellow saints, members of the household of God, we have a mediated covenant relationship as well. The reason you know Yahweh, the reason you know your father God is because of the son of Abraham. It is because, this is covenant language, because this servant was in Abraham, he could appeal to Abraham's God. And because you are in Christ, if your sins have been atoned for by his work on Calvary, you can appeal to the Lord, to the God, and the Father of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and be heard. Because yours, like this servant, is a mediated covenant relationship. This prayer is profound. It is prophetic. It lays out some of these principles that will come into fruition and fullness in the rest of Scripture. Suffice it to say, this profession of dependence illustrates the godliness of Eleazar, in quotes, I'm going to call him, Abraham's servant. And there's much to learn from it. Final point this morning. We have the oath, the prayer, and finally the praise. God answers this prayer that Eleazar offers, if that's in fact who it is. And he answers it in this way. Verse 15, a scene changes. Before he had finished speaking, so you can imagine the servant, we'll call him Eleazar, he's at the well, his head is bowed in prayer, perhaps he's kneeling. He has not even finished his prayer yet. He hasn't finished speaking, and behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. <clears throat> and at some point, Eleazar notices her, right? When he sees, well, there's a beautiful woman here, and here she is with a jar of water. He no doubt is flabbergasted that his prayer would be answered so quickly, potentially. 
The servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. You can almost hear the anticipation in his voice as we read. She said, drink, my Lord. He is blown away. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down the jar upon her shoulder and gave him a drink. And of course, you can imagine him. And she's probably wondering, why is this guy so interested in what's going on in the simple act of a drink and water? She soon finds out. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking the very thing he had asked of Yahweh just moments before. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew out for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He is blown away by what is going on. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And at that moment, all of the boxes are being checked. This is Abraham's kindred. She has offered water for my camels also. And she's extended him a hospitality. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And the response, this is the prayer, the third profession. The man, so our servant here, we're calling him Eliezer. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother, mother's household about these things. What do we see here in this exchange? Oh, so many things. In this uh, interaction, in this introduction of the servant to Rebecca, a virgin is visited. Will this happen again? Will a virgin be visited by a messenger of the Lord. I mentioned this earlier. Will a virgin be visited by a messenger of the Lord, giving a calling to covenant motherhood and the most important of, uh, in this case, marriages for the sake of God's redemptive purposes? Absolutely. A foreshadowing of the covenant motherhood calling of Mary herself, the angel of the Lord telling her as much we mentioned already is this call, is this, uh, this calling and our text today was preceded by this moment in the exchange between Abraham's servant and Rebecca. And like Mary, Rebecca responds with gracious submission to the Lord, saying that she will, in fact, consent. Even this was unusual culturally, but just to go forward a little bit in our text, notice verse 58. They called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Does this not echo the answer of Mary? Uh, your sir, I, I, be it unto me according to your word. Mary, the servant of the Lord, answers willingly, I will accept the call to covenant motherhood. Just as Rebecca, the saint who had gone before her, had done so many thousand years previous. A virgin is visited in this moment. And as this interaction takes place between Rebecca and the servant, 
There's another application for the young women in the audience, those listening. We find her to be a virtuous woman indeed. The praise that is offered, this profession of worship, is not just on the occasion of this interaction, but the evident virtues and the godliness of Rebecca that is pictured in this exchange. Indeed, right away, we find that she exemplifies traits that are laid out in the poetic ideal of Proverbs 31, that virtuous woman. Rebecca demonstrates herself to be a moral and chaste woman. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, yet, the text goes on, she was a maiden whom no man had known. A virgin, in fact, one who respected and honored the covenant boundaries of marriage and had kept herself pure accordingly. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. She's industrious. She offers a drink to the servant. She's kind and servant-hearted. We discover her to exemplify these traits laid out throughout the scriptures, a vision for godliness and the call to motherhood, the call to godly womanhood, the call to be a wife. She demonstrates herself to be moral, chaste, kind, servant-hearted, industrious, hardworking, and hospitable. Hence the occasion for Eliezer's worship. His jaw is dropped in this interaction. And upon this evidence of this woman merely being faithful to the Lord and honoring him in a simple task during the course of the day, this compelled Eliezer to bow his head and to worship the Lord and to say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. I was reading one commentator and they pointed this out. The very thing that Eliezer asked of the Lord, show steadfast love to my master, was the very character trait, traits that Rebecca exhibited to him. She was showing him in this picture of hospitality and kindness, generosity, and a servant heart and so forth, steadfast love, if you will, to this servant. And this steadfast love calling, this servant-hearted virtue would carry forward into her marriage as Rebecca, the wife, the godly wife, the covenant bride, secured upon this quest, was chosen and then would serve accordingly with her husband Isaac, who she would meet along the way. This is a beautiful picture. And of course, later on, we find that not all is a bed of roses, as the Bible is wont to do. We see that sin comes into the picture, and there is a distortion of the beautiful image of marriage. Nevertheless, the calling is here, and the ideals and the virtues that God has set forth are here proclaimed for us so that we can see an example of the standard to repent to, uh, that which God has called a virtuous woman to embrace. So a good hero for you, young women, is Rebecca. How do you prepare for marriage, young ladies? Well, by godliness. How do you secure a husband? By godliness. Encourage, be encouraged as you pursue a servant-hearted care, kindness, being industrious, and saving yourself for marriage, and being faithful to follow God's word, that that indeed is the best way that you can prepare for marriage. It would be wrong to compromise on Abraham's part, you know, for the hope of a wife for his son or for the hope of a child for him. And we see that negative example as well. And likewise, it would be wrong for a young woman to compromise her virtue for the hope of a husband. Do not do so, but have faith and be encouraged by saints who've gone before like Rebecca, 
who prepared for her husband by being faithful to the calling of God to be presentable at the day of his appointment for a Holy Spirit-arranged marriage. Finally, under the praise, the occasion for uh, the servant's worship, we see that Rebekah had a calling unto promise. So Rebekah says, yes, I will go, we find later in the story. But notice what has just happened. This calling unto promise came to her just as it had come to her future father-in-law decades earlier. Rebecca is living in the same place Abraham used to live, and now God has sent a messenger to call her out unto a situation he will show her along the way. <clears throat> she likewise, just like Abraham, heeded the voice of the Lord through the servant to come out of her familiar place of residence into, unto a land that she had not yet seen, unto a husband she had not yet met, unto a covenant promise that would be hers now, as she was called to be the mother of all the living, as it were, in the lineage of Sarah, in the lineage of Eve, lineage of Mary, and so forth. The promise that would be revealed along the way, uh, she in faith pursues. So Abraham and Rebekah, let me go on to say this by way of final application. When we see this calling of come out of Haran, the place of your familiar sinful past, unto the place of promise, upon the calling of the gospel, these are paradigms, paradigms for every believer. The gospel comes to you out of the place of your familiar surroundings, out of the place of your comfortable sin, and says, leave Haran, leave Ur, leave the wickedness of the pagan culture in which you dwell, and sacrifice the promise of the worldly things, and obey me and follow me and be virtuous unto the call of my holy word, listen to the voice of my Holy Spirit, and trust that you will be blessed along the way, and experience the covenant promises of God's glorious work and salvation as you pursue him in your life. <clears throat> so for 21 days, in this camel retinue, is that how you say it? Uh, Rebecca is sitting on this big animal, and the heat waves are dancing on the desert, <clears throat> and the wind is blowing and filling her eyes with dust. We're imagining her journey. She covers herself up with the veil, which will come in useful later. Until one day, some two weeks, three weeks pass, and there in the distance is the figure of a man. They get a little closer, and she asks the servant, who is this? That is my master's son, Isaac. She lifts her veil in anticipation of marriage. And as she does so, she realizes that the covenant promises are coming to pass in her experience. I imagine Isaac was as handsome as she was beautiful. You can let your own imagination fill in some of these gaps. This is a love story, and it is beautiful. But it has a foundation that's more solid than emotions. It has a foundation that's more solid than the dreams of two young individuals who are looking for love. It has a foundation that is more solid than the promises of a culture who encourages you to pursue fulfillment in relationship outside of God's prescribed means. This was a relationship that flourished with godly fruit that as a believer, you and I are partaking of even today. Because through their line of obedience, the Messiah himself would come. And so, believer, you have been called out, once again, of Ur, out of Haran, and out of your sinful experience to renounce the trappings and reassuring temptations of an idolatrous culture 
And the call is this. We read this in the New Testament, Mark 8, 34 to 38 and other places. Take up your cross and follow Jesus out of Haran in faith of covenant blessing to be revealed in fullness along the way. Let us close in prayer that God would give us this kind of faith. Lord, we thank you for the models in Scripture and the glorious illustration that we see in these accounts of what is our experience in Christ Jesus. We thank you, every believer in this room who resonates with this message, that you have called us out from the place of our familiar trappings, called us out of the world and sin and the promises of a wicked culture unto the glories that are being revealed along the way of life and godliness in Christ our Lord. We recognize that this is not anything of our doing or our works, but this change of heart and this fruit of grace is all due to your sovereign hand. Just as you preserve the covenant promises along the way in the case of a bride secured for Isaac, I pray that you would secure your covenant promises through your bride, the church, us, even today, as we seek to be faithful to the call to follow you wherever the Spirit may lead. I pray if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not heard the voice of the Lord calling them in repentance to turn back and away from their life of familiar sin and the trappings of this world and its promises. I pray today that they would hear the voice of your servant calling, your spirit's word coming to them and saying, come out, repent, and believe, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and enjoy the fruits of the glorious covenant promise. It's attended by suffering in many cases along the way, but that glorious fulfillment is so incredible that there is nothing that is not worth endurance in the call of righteousness and godliness, the call of every true believer. I pray, Lord, that this word would encourage us, the saints, and call the dead unto life as your gospel is proclaimed through the proclamation of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.